Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace change makers. Does an ethics and compliance department have to come across as the cop shop, a place no one wants to visit voluntarily, or the corporate version of Darth Vader? Decidedly not. Building in incentives and user-friendly policies and keeping the focus on the human element can help ethics and compliance programs move from cop to coach. Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Frank-Divers, the Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices at LRN. Today, I'm joined by Adam Balfour, who has worked extensively in the compliance and ethics area, most recently at Bridgetown America. Adam has been a Vice President and General Counsel for Corporate Compliance and for Global Risk Management, as well as General Counsel for Latin America, running and overseeing regional ethics and compliance programs, as well as other areas such as global risk management and privacy. We're going to be talking about the importance of humanizing ethics and compliance. Adam, many thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. So let's start about talking about your focus on the human element in ethics and compliance. What do you mean by that? Yes, yeah, so Susan, I think that the reason I've been so focused on really how do we humanize our ethics and compliance programs is really when I think about it, right, an ethics and compliance program, it's not about getting your organization to comply with the law. It's really how do you influence and connect with your employees because they're the ones and some other people as well, whether that's your contractors, whether that's the board, whether it's your suppliers, it's they are the people who need to be at the heart of your ethics and compliance program. Their acts or their failure to act is what's going to result in the actual compliance or non-compliance for the organization. So I, I really think it's important that we really place such a key focus on the people. And frankly, we see ethics and compliance through a people-focused lens rather than seeing people through an ethics and compliance-focused lens. I think it's just we've got to prioritize and really put people and, and human beings at the heart of our programs. I love how you phrase that. And as part of that thought, do you think there's been too much emphasis on rules and penalties in the ethics and compliance area? Yeah, I think that the short answer to that, Susan, is yes. I think we can rebalance this while also actually making our programs much more effective. I like to think and I kind of learn through analogies. So one of the ones I, I like to use here is, right, when you think about sports, right, all sports have rules, but sports are about so much more than just the rules and penalties. But the rules, they are absolutely important, right? They protect the interests, the well-being of the, the players or the athletes, they protect the teams, the fans, even the sport itself. But when you think about something like game theory, and I won't go deep on that, but you've got players, added value, rules, tactics, and scope. Rules are there. Rules are absolutely important, but they're not the only thing. And so I think with sports, right, we see that the rules are absolutely important, but that's not the kind of the be-all and end-all purpose. 
And I think when it comes to business as well, right, the rules are absolutely important, but they are meant to be how do we play this game of business? How do we interact with other people? How do we really deliver not only good business results, but also really delivering on our corporate purpose as well? One of the problems with ethics and compliance program brands is there's such a heavy focus on rules and penalties. And I think if you were to apply that to sports, right, it'd be like if you watch the FIFA World Cup final or, or the Super Bowl or whatever, and the focus is only on the rules, it's going to be pretty boring, right? You want to see that the people, you want to really focus on that. So I think when we really place a focus on rules, but think about the different elements involved here, I think we can actually make our programs much more engaging and just much more effective in practice as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And we have a saying in LRN that rules are good, but values are better. And when we talk about it, we frequently use the analogy of rules are the skeleton, but values are the circulatory system and the heart, if you use an analogy of a human being. I love the way you've articulated it using the sports analogy. So tell me, why is this human-centered approach better than simply using a rules and punishment model? I think one of the reasons that we're, and I think the way you just highlighted, it really matters, right? Values are something that we can connect with. I think they're, they resonate with us more. They can guide us in situations where a rule may not cover every single situation. It's much easier for people to connect with. But I find that a lot of times, and I've, I've spoken to people in our profession where we'll sit down with their colleagues and their fellow employees and people will say, well, look, compliance, it's such an important topic, right? I mean, it's really, everybody's got such a key role. But then when you press people on that to be like, so what does that mean, right? You know, what is your role? Or if you are a leader or manager and you've got, as your code of conduct may say, a special responsibility, what does that actually mean? When we really humanize this, I think we really present ethics and compliance in a way that is much more relevant and resonates with people. And I think it's just so much easier to help people buy in and understand why you have certain policies or certain standards or certain values or rules in place. It's the brand, it's the engagement that you can get with your employees on that human level. As you say, it's relating to people on a human level and respecting them and making the assumption that they're capable of really internalizing values and acting on them. So give us an idea of how this shift that you've engineered towards a more human-centered ethics and compliance program works in practice. Yeah. So I think it shows up really in all of the different pillars of a compliance program. So maybe I can start if you want, Susan, by kind of talking a little bit about you know how I think this works with, with something like policies. Perfect. So one of the things I think when it comes to really humanizing policies is to start with a section that really says, you know, why do we need this policy? I think that's a much more effective way. I think a lot of times people will start with defined terms, but having a very clear, I think a very human focused why as to why you need this policy. Policies introduce bureaucracy most of the time. So I think it's really good if you communicate a very human focused why. And I think one of the risks is if your why is that, hey, regulators expect us to have this, then I think that communicates to your employees that you as an organization and maybe even a compliance function, you don't particularly care about the substantive topic. If the regulators didn't have this, then you wouldn't have this policy or you wouldn't be looking to add this value. 
And so I get that people may feel compelled. Let's say you're putting out an anti-bribery policy. You know, should we reference the FCPA? Should we reference the UK Bribery Act? But I think you can take a different approach and you can start your policy by saying bribery and corruption of government officials, it often has a disproportionate impact on, on some of the most vulnerable people in our societies, right? They are some of the people who depend on government actions, depend on government support for their welfare and well-being. You can expand on that to say, look, our organization does not allow bribery and corruption, not only because it's illegal, but because doing so goes against our organizational values and our organizational purpose of supporting and helping our communities. So I think that's one of the ways in which we can still have policies, but it's more how do we frame them in that very human-focused way. I also think when it comes to policies, I wish everybody read policies that I write and put out there. <laughs> but I think the reality is that people don't. And I actually think that's okay. So one of the questions Susan, I like to ask in trainings, I've done it at compliance conferences, I've done it on uh, LinkedIn, is how many people have read their car manual in its entirety? I have only over the years had one person who's answered yes to that. She actually told me uh, her father was a car mechanic and she was made to read her car manual for the first time before she drove her first car. But I think other than that, people just don't read policies in their entirety. And so we've got to recognize that. We can challenge it to a little bit, but then we've got to think about if they're not going to sit down and read a 50-page code of conduct, how else can we help them connect with our policies and our, our standards and our values? Well, this is a great opportunity to talk about training next. Can you describe for me how you've taken this approach into training as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a little bit of a given, right? You want to train the right people on the right topics to help mitigate and manage your most significant compliance risks. I think we have to remember, and I kind of use this as a little bit of a mantra when it comes to training, is that not all training will result in learning and not all learning will look like training. So one of the things I've advocated for a while, and I'm, I'm going to continue advocating for this point, is I think we need to move away from, and even the Department of Justice uses this wording of training and communications, and focus much more on learning and engagement. And I think it sounds very subtle, but I think it's a really important change that we have to make. And so when we talk about training and communication, I think we're much more focused, frankly, on our intent as the compliance team and really the input, right? Did we provide the training? Did we roll out the online learning or online training? Did we send the communication? But I think in most of those instances, we're limiting our scope and our tools to PowerPoint trainings, to online trainings, maybe to some email communications. But if we switch to really focusing on learning and engagement, we become much more focused on the output. Right? Did someone learn? Was someone engaged in how the, the compliance team approached them? There's so many benefits to looking at it from that human, that employee perspective, but also from the compliance team's perspective, it's actually very, very freeing because once you're focused on the outcome, there's so many other ways in which you can get to that destination. I've done some strange things with my colleagues over the years, but I think they've been incredibly effective. Right? We've talked about compliance lessons from movies such as Star Wars. We've talked about similar things from Star Wars. I've got a, an event at CEI this year where we're talking about you know lessons of ethics and compliance from Ted Lasso. There's just so many ways where you can connect with people with things that they're already familiar with, and you can help them learn rather than just give them the very traditional training. Well, and I applaud you because you're really focusing on impact. 
you're not simply trying to push content out and counting that as a win. And that means in the end that you really have to take into account how employees actually learn, as you say. So let's turn to investigations too, because that's always a very difficult area. Yeah, I think it is. I think when it comes to ethics and compliance and really integrity, one of our key roles, both within the organization and outside, is is how do we build and maintain trust? And so I think at times when people approach internal investigations as this is really a way for us to protect and maybe mitigate legal or reputational harm for the company, then I think that's just too narrow-minded, right? It's just not looking at really the whole benefit that internal investigations can provide. And so I actually think investigations, when they're done properly, they can protect the organization, they can reduce liability and reputational harm. But I think it's also a really a way to show your employees that you care. When they speak up, that they will be listened to, they won't be retaliated against. I think it's also a really effective way that you can show commitment to your stated values and those standards that you have in your organization to really protect your culture. But I think it also can help you realize, you know, maybe a matter isn't substantiated, but people are regularly speaking up about an issue. Maybe that indicates there's a, a lack of understanding or your policies aren't clear or aren't, aren't really working in practice. I think if you only see investigations, as I, I think some people do, really about kind of liability mitigation. I think it's too narrow-minded, and I think it's just not helping your employees and your organizational culture. And there's different ways I think you can build that into your investigation. So even the intake process, is it a helpline? If it is, then who's it meant to help, right? Is it meant to help your employees? What's that experience? How long does it take for someone to report concerns using your helpline? So I think it's just something that we have to really see when someone speaks up. There's facts, there's perceptions, there's emotions, and we can see our employees as being human beings and really support them. So I think so many different ways we can humanize the investigation process, and it's really helps us kind of build that trust as well within the organization. And that, of course, also helps really strengthen ethical culture. My friend Scott Sullivan at Newmont Mining talks a lot about there's been too much emphasis on speaking up and not enough about listening up and about then taking action. Because if an employee actually comes forward and is brave enough to speak up, you have to ensure that that doesn't become a negative experience as you very articulately describe. So let's turn to another area. When I heard you speak at the Global Ethics Summit last spring, I know that you talk about incentivizing good ethics and compliance behavior. In other words, you're accentuating the positive, not just the negative consequences of misconduct. How do you do that inside your program? Yeah, no, it's definitely an area that I think is so important. I know there's been a lot of focus on this fairly recently with the discussion about clawbacks and other incentives, but I think this is an important topic that people have been considering for a while. We look back to September of 2022, Deputy General Lisa Monaco, she gave a speech in New York and she talked about incentives and she actually used the word culture 14 times throughout her speech. There was a particular comment that stuck in my mind where she says, as everyone here knows, it all comes back to corporate culture. So I think when you're introducing incentives or disciplinary measures within your organization, I think you really, one of the key starting places is to think about your culture. And so I think there's some places where the culture is very nice, it's very positive, 
I think that is going to lend itself very well to really being able to, as you put it, kind of accentuating the positive. So I've done some things before where we've introduced things such as leading with integrity awards. That's been probably one of my favorite things that I've introduced at Bridgestone's compliance program because leaders and managers and supervisors, right, they play such a key role. And Bridgestone Americas is such a big organization, right, about 50,000 employees even after almost 10 years, I don't know all 50,000 people and they don't know me. So we actually allow our employees, our teammates to nominate leaders and managers. And that does a couple of really great things, right? There's some leaders in the organization who I know who they are and I know they're doing a great job supporting compliance. There's other people who maybe I have some familiarity with them, but I didn't realize that they were doing such a great job supporting compliance. And then there's some other leaders and managers who maybe I've never met, maybe I'll never get the chance to meet because they work in another location. But to hear the work of these people and what they're doing makes such a, an impact on me. And I think it's just great to highlight. But other organizations, maybe they get a different culture. And I could see in those situations where maybe if it's a little bit more of a sharp elbow place or a little bit more kind of competitive, having some of those positive incentives may be less effective. And so I think it's really finding out what's right for your organization. And you can do that through incentives. You can do that through kind of annual goals, performance reviews. But also I think that the power of storytelling, I think just has such an impact on people. It's more memorable. It's more relatable. And so when you can really show, look, here's the benefits when someone spoke up, I think that creates some safety, psychological safety within the organization for people in other situations to think, maybe I should speak up if I see something similar. So lots of different ways, but as uh, Lisa Monica said, I think it really all does come back to corporate culture and what'll work. I love what you've done with storytelling and communication from what I've seen, particularly on your Sunday morning compliance tips and network activities. And I also understand that you're writing a book, which is incredibly impressive. So let's zero in on how ENC communications can be impactful and something that employees actually read, unlike policies, and use. How do you do that? So I think one of the ways that I've done it, and I've been greatly influenced in my thinking by, there's an organization called the Center for Creative Leadership, and they talk about their 70-20-10 framework, which is really about how adults learn. 70% is through experiential learning, right? We're doing our jobs, we're living our lives, we learn so much in doing that. 20% of it comes more from what I can call coaching or mentoring or just the developmental relationships. And then 10% of it comes from the more traditional classroom learning or kind of, you know, reading as a means to learn as well. So one of the things I've really been focused on is, you know, that 10% is important, but if we only focus on that 10%, we're leaving 90% off the table. And so how do we really lean in as much as possible to that kind of 100% and use that as an opportunity? So I think some of the ways we can do that with communications is really leveraging the voices of leaders and managers and supervisors. So something as simple as a, a client's tip of the month and asking leaders and managers, can you invest? And the answer to that is yes. Can you invest you know, one to two minutes a month talking to your team about this subject that relates to our values, it relates to our code of conduct, and putting it in terms that are going to be relevant and resonate with your part of the organization. That, to me, is incredibly effective. There was a, a quote from a film director a number of years ago, and, and it was to the effect of, who is telling whose story to whom and why? It's something that's really stuck with me because 
the communication itself is important, but when you see the people involved in the communication, you know, who's sending the message, who are they sending it to, and whose story are they telling, I think you really see the, the power of leaders and managers and why it's important that compliance, we use our voices often, but even more important that we get that the voices of leaders and managers as well uh, fully engaged. So that's just one of the ways in which I've tried to really kind of build some of my thinking into communication strategies. Well, I love how you've taken one very simple thing, which is here's a tip and the ask is small. It's can you talk about this for a couple of minutes in meetings? And that makes it feasible for people. And it's also respectful that they have other things to do as well. But I'm sure you have good uptake on that as a result. Tell us a little bit about your book and give us a bit of a preview there. Yes, we'll get a book coming out fairly soon, Susan. Hopefully, it'll be uh, released probably maybe September time is kind of the time frame or maybe uh, early October. And so the book is going to be called Ethics and Compliance for Humans. Our conversation today, it summarizes a number of the points and the approach that I really take in the book and really how do you build and develop and sustain programs that not only meet the expectations of regulators, but I think really help see that the humans that our ethics and compliance programs are designed for, that are meant to help and support, and really, you know, who are the people that we can protect through our programs as well. So I think, you know, often we look at when it comes to ethics and compliance, we may look at the, the wrongdoing, the headlines capture, big CEO did some type of wrongdoing, but who is harmed by that wrongdoing, right? You know, they are the whose story that we need to tell. So more to come on the book. I'm very, very excited about it. And I, I hope it'll be useful for ethics and compliance practitioners once it's published and released. Well, when it's published, I hope you'll come back and talk to us a bit more about it. So we're almost out of time, but before we leave the podcast, Adam, since you really are an innovator in the ethics and compliance space, I wanted to ask you what you see coming down the pike for ENC programs. I mean, there's chat GPT, there's data metrics. Are there other tools and trends that you see? It would be great to get your insights. I have um, played with ChatGPT, I've played with some of the other tools as well. This is a change that is coming for sure. And so I actually like the direction that some of this is going, that the tools are not perfect, that they're really what I'm hoping that we're going to see over the next, let's say the next 10 years, the next decade. I hope in 10 years from now, we look back and we look at codes of conduct and we almost laugh. Like, can you believe back in 2023, people were still putting together codes of conduct. They were, they were printing them. They were handing them out to employees and expecting people were going to read them. And how do we really have technology support our employees and really help and guide them along the way? I think we're already starting to see some of that technology. But to me, it's a little bit like, you know, when I drive my car, right, I get my lane departure warnings, I get my GPS and other things to help guide me. I'm not sitting down with a physical map trying to map out where I'm going. It's how does technology really get embedded into our processes? Because that's how human beings are today, right? We're so connected to our devices. So really leaning into that technology that can help people and I think also help uh, reduce the risk of isolated decision-making. I'd say the other point that I'm really hoping uh, for the future, I truly believe that as ethics and compliance practitioners, you know, we do add long-term value to our organizations and just to broader society as well. But I do think we've got to start thinking a little bit more about, well, what does the world look like in five years, in 10 years' time? I think we've got to really look at that and start to think a little bit more about how things are going to change. Because I imagine what we've seen in the last five or so years, 
Who would have thought we would have gone through that? What's the next five to 10 years going to look like? I think we have to start thinking about that from an ethics and compliance standpoint, almost start to embrace more kind of futurist type thinking into how we approach ethics and compliance and support our future employees. Well, that's a very good note to end on. I hope you'll be part of that dialogue going forward. It turns out we're running out of time. Adam, it has been a pleasure having you on the podcast, and I hope you'll come back and speak with us when your book comes out and on any other topic that comes up in the meanwhile. I hope to be back as well, Susan. So thank you so much for letting me join and having our, our conversation today. My name is Susan Frank Divers, and I want to thank you all for tuning in to the Principled Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.